I want to run some dates by you and just see if they mean anything to you. 26th of Australia, sorry, 20, 26th of January, that's right, it's not just a day off to watch the cricket, no, or the tennis, it's where we remember 1788, the first settlement, the convicts, where they raised the flag the first time. Uh, 25th of April, that's right, where we remember, that's right, the first landing at Gallipoli in World War I. What about 11th of November? Remembrance Day, where we remember the end of World War I. What about the 10th of July? More important than that. 10th of July. Close, but more important than even that. It is, of course, our wedding anniversary. Um, make sure I never forget that one. How well we remember something is often an indication of how significant it, to, it is to us, isn't it? I wonder what days from your past that you remember. I wonder what events you go out of your way to remember each year. Today we're looking at an event that, whether we realise it or not, is the most important event in all of history. In fact, what really stood out to me as I was uh, preparing this section was the amount of space given over to how God wants Israel to remember this event that we're looking at. The Passover here uh, in Exodus covers about three chapters, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. But it's only 15 or so verses, only about a quarter of it that talks about the actual rescue. The rest of it, the other three quarters, is God telling Israel how to remember these events. This is not just Australia Day, uh, a day off each year. This is, in fact, a whole brand new calendar that Israel are to have, where at the start of every year, for a week, they remember this event. So let's just have a, a real quick skim. Chapter 12, verse 2. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Down at chapter 12, verse 14. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast, and so on. Down at verse 17. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Down in verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord your God has promised, um, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, and so on. Uh, it still goes on, chapter 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Chapter 13, verse 14. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, it's not just that God wants to rescue his people, great as that is. He wants his people to remember 
their rescue. He wants them to remember that they were once slaves. He wants them to remember that the new land they have, the new freedom they have becomes, comes about because of his rescue. They didn't earn it. They were rescued. And so he gives them this special celebration, and we're going to see how it works. It's called the Passover. And their whole calendar revolves around it. At the start of every year, they eat bread made without yeast, and they eat a Passover lamb, and we're going to see it is to remember these events. Now, as you look on your outline, you can see a little bit um, where we're going with these events. We'll work through them one by one. If you've missed this event, you have missed something very, very big. It's the most important event in all of history um, before Jesus. And you'll see them on your outline. Uh, God judges rebellion. God provides a way to be rescued. God's rescue comes at a cost. God's rescued is to be remembered. We're, We're just really working through these chapters in order, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. But as you glance over that outline... You could be forgiven for thinking this talk was about Jesus, couldn't you? God judges rebellion. God provides a way to be rescued. God's rescue comes at a cost. There's lots of similarities between the Passover and what we know to be true about Jesus. And that's not an accident. That's not just a coincidence. In fact, this whole Passover event turns out to be a blueprint for Jesus' death. You know, when you build a house and you sit down with the builder and you look over the plans, the blueprints, and they're not the final house, but they'll show you what the final house will be like. You can see how many rooms the house will have. You can see where the kitchen will be. You can see what it'll look like from the front. Jesus' death and resurrection are like the final house, and the Passover is the blueprint. It's it's helping us see and prepare for Jesus' death. This event, uh, the Passover, in 1 Corinthians 5, um, Jesus is called our Passover lamb. This event, the Exodus, in Luke 9, Jesus talks about his death as the Exodus. This is a blueprint for Jesus and his death. And if you like, uh, point one, we're going to look at the first room of the blueprint. God judges rebellion. Let's pick up the action in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Now if you remember back two weeks ago, the last time we looked at Exodus, God was sending plagues on the nation of Egypt. Frogs, gnats, flies, boils, locusts, so on. But none of those plagues were actually intended to rescue the Israelites, were they? They were a warning to Pharaoh of what was to come. The first nine plagues were like sirens going off before a bomb raid, warning people to duck for cover and take refuge because this last plague is going to be the one that is devastating. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. 
From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There'll be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not even a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, we've already heard about um, children being killed, haven't, haven't we? Back in chapter 1, we withdrew in horror when Pharaoh gave the order to kill the Israelite boys. That was a terrible thing to do. And yet here, God is going to kill every firstborn son of the Egyptians. How does that sound to you? When I read it, it almost sounds wrong. Thousands of baby boys, thousands of teenagers, every firstborn son in Egypt will die at the hand of God. We need to keep in mind the context of God's judgment, don't we? God has told Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh has refused. God has already given nine warning plagues. Pharaoh has continued to ignore God's warnings, refused to acknowledge him as God. And in the end, God will not let Pharaoh stand in his way of rescuing his people. God will not let rebellion go unpunished. He's God. That's the first thing that we need to understand if we're going to understand the cross and the future judgment. That's the first room in the blueprint, if you like. See, God has announced that one day he will judge this whole world. And when God judges, it will be fair. And we live now in the warning time. We can either ignore God's warnings like Pharaoh did and face the full force of his judgment, which we will see Pharaoh face in a while here, or we can trust God and we can make use of the escape that he provides. Well, as we move on, point two, we see that when God judges, he, in his mercy he provides a way for people to be saved. Here in the Old Testament for, is, for the nation of Israel, what's the way to be saved? How is it that God chooses who will be saved and who won't? On what basis does God make his distinction? Is it on how good people are? What is it about? Well, the answer to that um, question is in chapter 12. This is how it will work. Chapter 12, verse 3. Each family is to take a lamb. Verse 5, it's to be a perfect lamb without defect. This is the passage that was read for us earlier. Verse 6, on the appointed night that God tells them, the 14th day of the month, they're to kill the lambs. And strange as it sounds, verse 7, they are to take some of the blood from the lamb and they're to put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames to their houses. And then they're to stay inside. And when God's judgment comes... He will make a distinction based on which homes have the blood over the doorposts. Verse 12, on that same night, I'll pass throughout Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. In fact, that's where this whole event gets its name from, the Passover. Because when God comes in judgment, he will pass over the families that are in the houses with the blood on them. They'll be spared. All the Israelites need to do is take God at his word and trust him. And they'll be saved. They don't need to necessarily understand how it works. They don't need to question it. They simply need to trust God and do it. And even the, four, the smallest amount of faith in God's promise could trust someone. As, as long as you just painted the blood on the door, as long as you just did what God told you to do and waited inside, you and your family would be saved. That's the blueprint. And so, of course, it's no surprise when we get to the New Testament that we see that God, when he comes to judge in the future, has provided a way for people to be saved from his coming judgment. Now, God's way to be saved from his judgment for us is not to kill a Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, but to trust in Jesus and his death on the cross. In other words, Israel sheltered under the blood of a Passover lamb, we take shelter under the blood of Jesus. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's that simple. All you have to do is take God at his word. Trust him. Believe in the way that he's provided for you to be saved. But back to the Exodus, where the Israelites are, are now painting the blood on their doorposts. And let's be clear about what's happening here and what's not happening. This blood on the doorpost business, it's not like some magical incantation thing. It's not as if somehow the blood on the doorposts will repel God's angel of death, you know, like garlic to vampires kind of thing. It's, not, it's none of that. It's simply that God has chosen that this will be a sign. Verse 23, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. It's not something magical. It's, it's a prearranged signal between God and his people. It's like, let the phone ring three times and I'll come and pick you up from soccer practice. God says, put the blood on the door and I'll know that in this house... There's people who trust me. Now, at that point, the sign could be anything, couldn't it? I mean, it could be a piece of cotton tied to the door handle. So why did God choose this sign? Uh, it's a bit morbid, isn't it? Why blood on the doorposts? Well, it's explained in verse 13. See, this sign is not just a sign for God. It's a sign for us. Verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. The sign is not just for God. The sign is for the Israelites. See, the blood is a lesson for the Israelites that God's rescue comes at a cost. The cost here is that the Israelites have to kill an innocent lamb and put its blood on the door. 
It's not because God needed a lamb to be killed. It's a sign that to release people from judgment, there's a cost. But the real cost, of course, is not a lamb that is killed back in the Passover. That's the blueprint. The real cost is Jesus and his death. In 1 Peter 1, it says, You were bought with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, the real rescue, God's rescue of us from our sin, came at the cost of his own son. Let's go back to the Exodus one more time. At the end of chapter 12, in verse 29, as promised, God's judgment comes. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Finally, the full force of God's judgment comes. And unlike the other times where Pharaoh just stubbornly refused to acknowledge God as God, this time, finally, Pharaoh says, I've had enough. And he lets the Israelites go. And we'll see more of that next week, their exodus. God's people are set free just like he promised. But that's not the end of this section, is it? We're still only at the end of chapter 12. We still have chapter 13 where God tells the Israelites to remember the Passover. Every year, they're to have a week off at the start of the year where they eat bread made without yeast. Kind of flat, doughy bread. It's not as exciting as bread with yeast. Why are they eating flat bread? It's the whole point of it is to show that how strong and powerful God's rescue was. In the end, when God said go, they didn't have time for their bread to rise. They were just up and out of there. And Pharaoh was judged with God's mighty hand of judgment. And so God says, as a way of remembering this each year, have seven days at the start of the year where you eat bread without yeast to show how quick you had to get out of Egypt, to show how mighty God's rescue was. And on top of that, at the start of each year, they're to slaughter another lamb as they celebrate the Passover to remind them that God's rescue came at a cost. And that's what the nation of Israel did. They remembered this event. On the first day of the month of the year, they started to celebrate the Passover festival. And in fact, as you read on, as Israel are wandering around the desert, they celebrate their first Passover. And then when they enter the promised land, they celebrate the Passover. 600 years later with King Josiah, they are still celebrating the Passover. There's times they forgot, but there's times they renew it. 800 years later under Ezra, they celebrate the Passover. They're still remembering their rescue. 1,200 years later, they are still remembering this rescue. But 1,200 years later, it's just about to come to an end. Because on this Passover, on the first day of the month, an Israelite called Jesus... He's up in a small room and he's celebrating this meal 
with his friends the Passover. And he does something totally unheard of. He takes the unleavened bread, which was to remember God's mighty rescue from Egypt. He breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, don't remember the Passover anymore. There's a bigger rescue about to happen. And then he takes the cup of wine and he says, don't remember the Passover lamb anymore. Remember me. This cup is the new covenant, the new promise, the new rescue in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He's the one that the blueprint was pointing forward to. And as we read on in the Gospels, we see that Jesus, like a Passover lamb, was slaughtered. During the Passover festival, he's killed on a cross. Jesus dies to rescue God's people, not from Pharaoh, not from slavery to an earthly king, but from slavery to sin. And ever since that Passover, ever since Jesus' death and resurrection, God has been calling people to come to Jesus and be rescued. Rescued from everything they've ever done wrong. And so even here this morning, there will be two kinds of people here. There'll be those who need rescuing, need rescuing who haven't yet been rescued. And there'll be those who need rescuing who have been rescued. Now, where do you stand with God's rescue? I'd like to firstly just address the people who haven't been rescued yet. If you're here this morning and you are like Pharaoh, you're not listening to God's warnings, that you take no interest in his way to be rescued, then be very clear. You can only do that for so long, but you can't stand against God in defiance forever. I mean, it worked a little while for Pharaoh, but one day God will say enough is enough and his judgment will come. And in the meantime, God is inviting you to be saved. All you have to do is stop rejecting him and trust in his son. It's that simple. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, and if you want to find out more, please make sure you come up at the end of the meeting and talk to me. I'll be right here. I would love to talk to anyone who is not yet saved and explain this more to them. But then I want to address now the people here this morning who have been rescued by Jesus. What does God want you to do? He wants you to remember that you've been rescued. If God was so particular about the Israelites remembering their rescue, great as that was, how much more does he want us to remember our rescue? See, in remembering Jesus' rescue, it changes our whole life. Following Jesus doesn't make you any more deserving than anyone else. You've just been rescued. You're not here this morning because you're a good religious person. You're here this morning because you've been rescued by Jesus. You're here because God has rescued you from your mess, from your rejection of him. So there's no room here for people 
who are smug. There's no room for pride. We're just people who've been rescued. So don't make the mistake of thinking that somehow you start off by being rescued by Jesus, but then you sort of become a good person and then you earn your way to heaven. It starts with God's rescue. It ends with God's rescue. On God's judgment day, there's only one place that we have to take shelter. It's under the blood of Jesus. That's why we need to keep remembering his rescue. How are you going at doing that? How are you going at remembering Jesus' rescue? Is your life shaped by it? Do you, at the dinner table, remind your children about it and before they go to bed, uh, pray about the rescue that Jesus has done? Does it shape the way that you bring up your children? Does it shape the way that you see your friends and family? Do you see them as people who are rescued or people who are need rescuing? Do you have that division? Does it shape and define who you are? Not first and foremost an Australian who celebrates Australia Day, not a doctor, not a teacher, not even a husband or a wife or a father or a mother, but first and foremost someone who's been rescued by Jesus. If God wanted the Israelites to remember the blueprint, imagine how much more we should remember the real thing. So let's make sure that we know that we are people who've been rescued by the precious blood of Jesus. Let's make sure we remember.